This is our first special edition for the Bitcoin Optech podcast. So we will not be covering the newsletter, but something different this week. Bitcoin Optech recently hosted a special series of 10 posts in our weekly newsletter that covered the topics of mempool and policy. The series was titled Waiting for Confirmation, and it contained posts about incentives, bidding for block space, fee rate estimation, and more. Optech was fortunate enough to have both co-authors of the series, Gloria and Merch, on our podcast for each of those 10 weeks to discuss each post. This podcast is a compilation of those discussions, including comments from our special guests, as well as audience questions during the original recordings. We hope you enjoy. The first of these entries is why do we have a mempool? So Gloria, not only why do we have a mempool, but why is it important to highlight these types of discussions in the newsletter for the coming few weeks? Yeah, this is part of a 10-week series called Getting Transactions Confirmed. Given current events, this seemed pretty relevant. Concor at least got a PR about removing standardness rules and various requests about adding mempool policy to prevent things like inscriptions or stamps. Or we also got a request to create patches for miners to run um, package relay, for example. We also get a lot of questions like, you know, why did my transaction fall out of the mempool and my wallet now thinks I lost this money? We got, should I just increase my max mempool given, you know, how full it is right now? Does that help the network? Isn't standardness just devs imposing censorship? Why does my fee estimator suck so much? You know, all these kinds of questions and the hope is to answer them in the next 10 weeks. For me, at least, it illuminated that there's not a really good understanding of how transaction really works and what standardness is, but also there's not a lot of accessible documentation and educational material about it either. So like the hope is not really to be like condescending and be like, hey, you guys didn't know this, but like, you know, we devs have decided that we need to have these extra rules. It's very, the hope is to kind of eliminate that kind of thinking and also encourage people to to think of like, you know, since there's so many applications building on top of Bitcoin Core and we're, you know, transitioning into this multi-layer ecosystem, that transaction really in mempool is, is really an interface that we need to uh, collaborate on. The hope is that after this, people will, especially devs, will have a better understanding of kind of the things that are there that are really important and also encourage people to open PRs and ask like, hey, this standardness rule got in the way of my use case, which is actually a really good use case. How can we change that in, in a collaborative way? Because I think I also don't want people to think that. So one person commented like, oh, Bitcoin Core moves like really slowly. So there's there's no way we're going to be able to change standardness in order to accommodate this use case. So can we just like make this patch for a miner to run so that we can submit directly to miners? And that was really heartbreaking for for me and I want us to you know have a have a good standards rule that that works for the network so that kind of brings me to this first one which is like I've tried to say it's you know the function the network functions the best when everyone has the same thing in their mempools and that sounds very centralizing to some people but I wanted to kind of explain okay what, what, why do we have a mempool like why wh and what makes our mempool useful so that's kind of our first section 
the first part, I talk a little bit about like, okay, if you're an individual node, what are the benefits of having a mempool, which is just a cache of confirmed transactions. And the main use is you get to kind of amortize, sorry, that's a bad word, distribute the the load of downloading, validating, downloading and validating blocks over the course of you know, while your node is running instead of in bursts every like 10 minutes or so. So since you have a mempool, you'll hear about transactions as they come in. To, oh, I just, Merch just said, I said cache of confirmed transactions. Sorry, cache of unconfirmed transactions. And there's a bunch of other data structures as well, such as your UTXO cache, your signature and script validation caches. And these are all things that you populate when you hear about transactions on the network before they get confirmed. And this means that when a block is found, Everybody can essentially use a compact block relay, it, read BIP-152 if you want more details, in which you really just need to forward your block header and some like short IDs, which is extremely, extremely small compared to the size of the actual, uh, of the full block. And then you're like, all right, I already have all these transactions in my mempool. Cool, all the UTXOs are already loaded in my cache. I already did the computationally expensive work to validate the signatures and the scripts. Cool, boom, 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 and I can pass on the block. So from an individual node standpoint, this is really cool. You don't have these like huge CPU and network spikes every 10 minutes. I think there's like this anecdote, maybe from like a talk by Greg, Greg Maxwell a long time ago, where he talked about like they would be on video chats and then like every 10 minutes or so, everybody's like video quality would go down because a block was just found and like their laptop or their computer is like, downloading and validating the block. So with Compact Block Relay, you, you at, at least, like your computer does not go through this, this process every 10 minutes, instead just kind of like slowly does it over time. And then at a network-wide level, given the fact that everyone can download and validate blocks so quickly, the network-wide propagation speed is way faster. And this means that there's fewer stale blocks because as soon as someone's found a block, there's less, if two blocks are found at around the same time, for example, the race is resolved much sooner. And so this is like kind of, this is kind of a theme in, in mempool and transaction really is like, you find something that makes sense for an individual node to do. And then there's this kind of behavior that is network wide, that is also really beneficial. So that was that's kind of like the first part of why do we have a mempool? And the second part is like, why why not just submit directly to miners? And I wanted to get this out as soon as possible in the in the first section of the first section? Yeah, post of the series. Because like like I just said, everybody has their own mempool. Hopefully everybody has the same thing, but that's not always true. Right. And there's attacks where you can send different versions of transactions that conflict with each other to mempools all over the network. And this is really frustrating. I know this is really frustrating for for businesses and users that are trying to like use this to send payments. Right. And I get this question all the time, which is like, why don't we just submit things to miners? So the first argument, it, sorry, am I just like ranting? <laughs> but the first argument is kind of tacking on to compact block relay that I just talked about. Whenever you send things directly to miners and only to miners, there is a 100% chance that every hop on the network cannot just use vanilla, like first compact block 
reconstruction and like understand that they have all the transactions already and then move on. Every single hop on the network has to do an extra round trip to relay that transaction. And so you you kind of lose the benefit of, of compact block relay at any time only a miner knows about a transaction. And this is especially the case if, for example, you're going to submit non-standard transactions to miners. So that's kind of a very unfortunate consequence of, of doing so. But the main reason why, for example, we don't have a Bitcoin that's designed such that you have these kinds of centralized submission points is... Like the whole point here, or one of the biggest values of Bitcoin is is to create this kind of censorship resistant slash private way of paying. And the, that is enabled by the peer-to-peer transaction relay network. So for example, if there were five miners or 10 known miners that everybody submitted their transactions to, it would be a lot e- like way easier to, for example, have all of these miners log the IP address of the person who submitted each transaction, and then to take it a step further and for, say, a government to say, okay, 10 miners, they only had to go to 10 entities, you have to be compliant with these rules. You cannot accept transactions from IP addresses that come from this country. We also ban this list of addresses. So if you see a transaction sending money to this address, you have to drop it on the floor. Um, and this kind of undermines basically one of the, I would say, the use case for Bitcoin, which is to avoid a situation like that. And furthermore, this decentralized transaction relay network where everybody kind of hears about transactions, everybody like essentially the best way to send your transaction is to join the network as an anonymous you know, node and to connect to you know, these anonymous peers, which may or may not be miners or they could be connected to miners and you send your transactions to them and you get to kind of obfuscate you as the originating node because it goes through all these hops and it could it could go to anyone and it could come from anyone and there you know you could also submit over tor which is like basically exactly the same idea where you're hiding your ip address behind a series of hops of you know nodes that don't know each other right And so, yeah, like this is kind of the idea to hide who mines the transactions and who sent the transactions. And another, sorry, one last point of like kind of the benefit of everyone being an equal participant in this network is also anyone can then become a miner. So if you're unhappy with what's being mined today, let's say miners are just mining empty blocks or, you know, they're not mining your transaction or whatever. You can start mining. Of course, you know, hopefully you need the hash rate in order to do it. But there's no barrier to entry in terms of knowing about what transactions and thus fees you can include in your blocks. So like Harding wrote an example, which was, let's say, yeah, there's only 10 miners and you're a user and you're like deciding who to send your transactions to. Well, obviously, you're going to send to the biggest miners because they have the best chance of confirming your transaction. And let's say this like teeny little miner with, you know, 1% or 0.5 or 0.1% of the hash rate joins the network. You're like, well, I'm not going to send it to you because like there's diminishing returns in like adding an extra step in my broadcast system. And so this then like means that that miner who like just joined the network will also not be able to include very many fees and that, you know, kind of just, 
changes the dynamic of kind of the accessibility or like the the entry cost of, of becoming a miner. Whereas today, hopefully, like you can just spin up any node on the network and you'll hear about hopefully 99.99% of transactions that, you know, the big miners are also hearing about. And so th- there's this kind of like, essentially my main point is these philosophical like ideologies of what we want Bitcoin to be are enabled by this peer-to-peer network. And that works because each mem- each node has a cache, <laughs> and just a cache of, of unconfirmed transactions. It's just a cache. And like, we don't have to think about it as being really that complicated for now, other than like, yeah, it's just a cache of unconfirmed transactions. And then at the very end, I'm like segueing into, well, your cache needs to be hot in order to be useful. So how do you measure like, your mempool fills up how do you measure what's going to be the most useful transaction to keep and then that kind of leads us into fee rate and fees which is a concept that is used in a lot of mempool policies so stay tuned for part two (laughs) this is part two on incentives to recap last week we talked about mempool as a cache of unconfirmed transactions that essentially allow users a way to send transactions to miners in a decentralized way. And we're going to build on that thought process today here. And one of the authors of of this segment, Gloria, is here to walk us through her thought process on incentives. Yeah. So kind of following up on the two ideas that we explored last week, one being it's just a cache. It's just a cache of unconfirmed transactions. And the other being that we have this decentralized transaction relay system. So on one hand, we're like, okay, the first question you might ask when you're talking about the cache and in a computer is like, how do we measure its utility? If we want it to be useful, so like, how do we measure the usefulness of each item in this cache? And of course, the other one is, you know, we're, we're riding this wave of high transaction volume. And so, you know, mempools kind of serve as this decentralized fee-based market for block space. And then let's see. So we kind of start off this post with this idea that block space is scarce. And that's a good thing. We've probably been feeling its scarcity for the past few weeks. And because of the scarcity, we have this, we have to have some way of, or I guess the miners have to have some way of deciding what goes into blocks. And ideally, the fairest kind of decision making process, or in the free market sense, hopefully this decision making process is just based on fees. So mempools kind of serve as this public auction platform where you can see what other people have bid. You can estimate what you might need to bid in order to beat someone to to get this block space. And we also talk about a little bit about how mining like block assembly works, at least in Bitcoin Core. To my knowledge, miners are using the same algorithm. It's pretty good. Merch has done a lot of research in... Like it's it's not the perfectly optimal algorithm. It is one that kind of relies on you know mempool caching being being a thing, and then it's it's this greedy algorithm. And we have two examples of policies that we list in that post. 
about these two policies essentially help with the efficacy of this, again, not optimal greedy algorithm, because selecting transactions to fit inside, to maximize fees and to fit inside the SIGOB limit and the weight limit is an NP-hard problem. So yeah, that's that's kind of the general overview. I don't know if Merch, Merch was the other author on this, if you want to elaborate on any of these things. I, I kind of wanted to bridge a little bit from the title of our column to the content. So why did, did we call this piece incentive? And so the idea is, of course, we, we want to have this big market for block space where everybody can see what other people are bidding, where you can get your transaction through by bidding the most. And that makes, of course, sense from the miners' perspective, where the miners say, we want to maximize the fees that we collect in each block. But it also makes sense from the user's perspective, because as we already mentioned last week, block propagation is faster when we have all transactions already that miners include in their blocks. And therefore, also, sorry, also when we fee estimate, we we base that on what we have seen in our mempools. So we want to have the same things in the mempool, in our mempool, as the miners do in their mempool. As long as the mempools across the network are homogenous, we get the best results both for block propagation, fee estimation. We get the most informed bids for ourselves. So... The incentives are aligned in that regard. Gloria, you mentioned selecting transactions for a block due to the limit on weight and SIG ops being an NP hard problem. Can you try to break down what an NP hard problem is? Oh, let me look up the Wikipedia page for NP hard problem. Basically, a, a difficult problem. So this is if you're a computer science person this is two-dimensional knapsack kind of the basically mp hard means like the only way to let's say you're given a mempool and you're trying to build a four million weight unit block and you're trying to like figure out what is the like absolute maximum amount of fees that i can fit into this block and which transactions are those kind of the only way to figure that out is to try every single combination there are ways to try to do it better. For example, um, what we'll do is we'll try to sort by ancestor fee rate and we'll select the better one, the best ones first. However, of course, it, kind of the best example of, of this is let's say you have a transaction that is very, extremely close to 4 million weight units. Like it's like that giant taproot wizard, for example. Because we use a greedy algorithm, if there is so much as one transaction that's like 100 virtual bytes that has a higher fee rate than that 4 megabyte one, we will select that tiny one first and then not have room for the second best fee rate transaction in the mempool. Of course, like we can add logic to potentially swap out those transactions because, you know, in this situation to you and me, it's like very obvious that like we should evict this other transaction from our block template and put in this this huge taproot wizard that pays the second highest fee rate. But we're really concerned about performance when we're talking about building a block template for miners, like every millisecond counts, right? Because you're trying to 
you, you only get these fees if you win the block. And so generate, sorry, get block template should be really fast, um, which is why we take these quote unquote shortcuts and we do things like we limit how big a standard transaction can be so that we're not getting into these situations where it's, you know, it's between this gigantic high theory transaction and like, um, like swapping things out and stuff. Which So like, did I answer the question? It's a hard problem. <laughs> and so kind of we do pretty well by limiting what transactions we're going to be working with and using this like greedy algorithm and picking by ancestor fee rate. Well, okay. No, it's t- okay. Just, just, just to, it's to knock out plus the extra complications of you have dependencies between transactions. So for example, if one unconfirmed transaction spends another, you have to mine the parent in order to mine the child. So this like adds a layer of complexity. I probably should have said this in the beginning. I apologize, but this is just to illustrate that it is NPR. It's a hard problem. March has his hand raised. Yeah, I I think that you already mentioned the, the main point, which is basically the problems trying to find the optimal solution for an NP-hard problem scales polynomially in the number of objects in the solution space. So, for example, people might know that sorting is kind of, you have to compare a lot of items in a list to sort something, but that scales with slightly more than linear. And polynomial means it blows up immensely. It It means that it exponentially increases in workload to find the optimal solution. So to to for example in the case of pool that has over a gigabyte of transactions with 500,000 different transactions queuing, we would have to find all possible orders to to make sure that we got the optimal next block we would have to try all 500,000 transactions combined in any order right so you, you might imagine how much work that would be if we if we tried to exhaustively search that so we we find that with the ancestor based fee rate selection we do pretty well already claire and i published a write up last summer about trying to do this with a approach called candidate set based mining where we try to cluster transactions that are connected first and find the best package from that cluster to include in the next in the block next and we found that at least for the the block times that we tried it on the best result was only 0.7% more fees than just using the ancestor set based one, which is pretty quick. So we're we're not finding the optimal solution, but we're finding a good enough solution. And the whole problem gets much harder when the chunks that fit into the space are bigger, because then you 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 get sort of an effect towards the end with the greedy approach that is called the tail effect, where some of the transactions might not fit in anymore and you have to start swapping out. By limiting ourselves to transactions that are most one-tenth of the block, we limit when when this tail effect starts and we can just sort of throw up our hands after trying a bunch of things and say, well, this is good enough. Whereas if we allowed transactions to be up to the full block size, we would immediately start with the tail effect and then we would get into a situation where we actually have to try a huge combination space of 
possible things because we have to see so let's say we we take these five transactions but then nothing else fits in and we we have to com compare that to thousands of other transactions combining and taking that space instead gloria or merch anything else that you'd like listeners to take away from this week's post in the series i'm good oh i guess one tiny thing from the ultimate goal of this series is to help people building on top of bitcoin or using bitcoin to understand a little bit better how things work i think people are probably in fee bumping vines nowadays and seeking as many solutions as possible and there are various solutions out there hopefully hopefully people kind of read this and start to demand better wallets as well as look at some of the inefficiencies in mempool so I, i think the existence of kind of out of band fee services can point to there maybe not being efficient enough public auction bidding processes or available tools in available in the public market right and you know some of that like it's not necessarily the case that we cannot improve and this is one of the things that i really wanted to like communicate to the community with this series is like a demand better wallets build better wallets and b kind of let's work together as application and protocol devs or users and devs in general to make this interface better for everyone that's kind of my main i mean message that i wanted to finish off with Dave, did you have a comment? Uh, so I, I do. I think this is a, a great section. I'm really glad that Gloria and Merch are writing it. And I completely agree with everything that Gloria just said, that this is a collaborative effort. You know, this is something that we all need to work on, trying to get policy right so that it works for as many use cases as possible and also you know, miners and nodes, relay nodes, making sure just everywhere works together. But I, I had an, an, a question while I was listening to Gloria and Merch talk. It's not really a question, it's a crazy idea. So it sounds to me like a lot of the complications that we have from creating good policy today are kind of related to ancestor mining. Now that's a really powerful feature. It enables CPFP, And there's people who want to build on it with things like transaction sponsors. But what if we went the other way and just soft forked out the ability to include any related transactions in the same block? So when a parent transaction goes in a block, that block can't include any children. So now it's no longer necessary to have ancestor favorite mining. We don't need package policies. I'm sorry, Gloria. What Would that like massively simplify things? Would we be in a much better position to have more flexible policies or would there still be a lot of these underlying problems? I realized that, you know, package selection would still be an MP hard problem. You know, I just wanted to get Gloria and Merch's quick takes on, you know, what would that simplify if we didn't have the ability to have descendant transactions in the same blocks as their ancestors? Do you want to take it first? Okay, go ahead. This would make our lives so much easier. <laughs> Great idea. Concept back. <laughs> I, I, this is basically where the thoughts for things like cluster mempool come from. Basically, it's like, can we limit cluster size to one? 
yeah, it would make things much, much, much easier. That's kind of my only answer. But it would, but it would, we would have use cases that are no longer available, of course. Yeah, exactly. So this would would make mempool way easier. It would throw out a ton of DOS vectors. It would make block building massively easier. It would probably encourage a lot of people to very quickly finally add RBF support because now that would be the only way to unstuck transactions since you clearly could not CPFP stuff anymore. It would also introduce a bunch of new design constraints on second layer protocols and other ideas. So, for example, of course, you wouldn't be able to have a lightning transaction that is bumped by by a anchor output. The lightning transaction would have to be able to carry its own fee rate. Perhaps we could have, for example, on the commitment transactions and SIGHASH single construction where people can then add additional inputs to provide the fees. And that way we could still have lightning channels that close. But yeah, it it would very much change a lot of the design properties for, for things that are going on in the space. But yeah, cluster size one would, would be amazing. That would yeah, we we could probably skip ahead in a bunch of pro- protocol development efforts by, well, skip back in time and just not spend years on them. Yeah, I think looking back when we were, I remember a conversation with someone else where it was like, oh, we should have started with maximum cluster size one. Or like we should have started with you're not allowed to spend unconfirmed transactions in mempool. And then like as use cases like Lightning opened up, we would be like, okay, how do we like get two transactions in a mempool? Or like, how do we get like, how do we add trees to the mempool? But instead we kind of started with like, oh, anything's allowed. And then we're like, oh, we can't handle this because of DOS. So we like try to add heuristics to like restrict things. And then we find like a difference between like what's what we can handle and or like because we have these heuristics or we're not handling things optimally there's like these pinning vectors or like whatever and then basically now we're trying to like carve out what makes sense and the vast majority of clusters are of size one in mempool according to the research that, that you guys have done but like of course now if we were like all right we're going to change like bitcoin core's policy to not allow you know, ancestor packages or descendant packages larger than two or one or whatever, then it's like, okay, now there, there are uses. There there are still like some people who are using this. So we cannot like now add the restriction. But if we had started with maximum size one, that would have been cool. And maybe we wouldn't have, we, we wouldn't, you know, be in the, in this situation, but we cannot go back in time and change that. Thanks for the answers. That's that's what I was thinking to a certain degree, but I was glad to hear that I'm not completely crazy for thinking that. Thanks again. This is part three. We spoke about in part one about why we have a mempool at all. And in part two, we talked about how transaction fees are an incentive mechanism for miners to include your transaction in a block that is limited in terms of the amount of block space. And now in part three here, we're outlining strategies to get the most for those transaction fees. Merch, I know you're one of the authors of this week's series. How do you think about bidding for block space? Yeah, so 
as we know, the demand for block space has been a little different in the past few months. And I think that every time we see these peaks of block space demand and the fee rates shoot through the roof accordingly, it drives people to adopt efficiency improvements that have been outlined and available for a while. So, for example, in the 2017 run-up, we saw that a lot of people started using wrapped SegWit very quickly and then later also started transitioning to to, um, native SegWit because the fees were so high and they they just started moving to to using new address standards. So at least the future UTXOs that they were receiving would be cheaper to spend. So in in our column this week, we outline a little bit the mechanics of building transactions, which parts of the transactions we have the most leverage to, to influence when we build our own transactions. We also point out how using more modern output types will save you money, especially when block space demand is high. But generally, the more modern output types take less block space, so you'll pay less fees for them. And we especially also talk about reprioritizing of transactions. So there are two main mechanisms to do so with CPFP and RBF, and we go a little bit into the trade-offs. So that that's just roughly the overview. I think I can dive into more details if if you think that's useful. Yeah, I think it would be I think it would be useful. And also, I want to make sure that that Gloria can can chime in as well. I know she was a, a co-author of this segment. Gloria, any thoughts so far? Well, Merch is the coin selection guy, so I think he's the perfect person to talk about this. Um. All right, let, let, <laughs> let me go a little more into detail. So when we build transactions, the header bytes of the transaction are basically always required. So and they, they just change a little bit, whether you're building a non-segwit transaction or a segwit transaction. And then the input counters and output counters will get slightly bigger if you exceed the magical border of 252 inputs or outputs, then you need a few more bytes on the input counter or output counter. But other than that, the you can think of the transaction header bytes on a transaction to be a fixed overhead that everyone that wants to build a transaction has to pay. Regarding the outputs, generally there are payload. We want to make a payment or multiple payments. So we know already which script pub keys we need to pay. And we know already what amounts we want to assign to them. We can pick, of course, what output type we use for our own change output. And we can try to avoid a change output altogether if we pick our inputs in a, a smart way. But generally, the outputs are also very inflexible because those are the the things that we aim to create and thus they're predetermined by, by the payments we want to make. So finally, the inputs are actually where we have a lot of room for flexibility. With the inputs, of course, we, we want to be thrifty. Especially when the fee rates are high, we want to minimize the weight of the input set. We can do that, for example, by using modern output types. If we use a pay-to-taproot input, that will cost less than half in block weight than, for example, a non-segwit pay-to-public key hash input. And if we then are sensitive to the fee rate in how we approach coin selection, we would, for example, use as few as possible inputs at high fee rates and as lightest 
inputs as we can. While at low fee rates, we might want to be looking ahead and say, if we have a super fragmented wall wallet, already use a few more inputs and the heavier inputs like the old formatted output types. We would want to prefer using those at low fee rates because we can then spend the more costly and higher weight inputs and consolidate them into bigger chunks of modern output types to save funds in the future when the fee rates get high. So it's sort of, you you could think that you would want to optimize on every single transaction to build the smallest input set. But even back in 2016, when I wrote my master thesis on coin selection, we saw that service providers and wallets that use this strategy would just very brutally fragment their UTXO pool and set themselves up for situations where later when they wanted to create transactions, especially at high fee rates, they would suddenly have no option other than picking a huge input set with dozens of inputs and pay a huge fee, right? Especially when when you have ground down all of your inputs to small pieces and you then want to make a big payment, you just have to include a bunch of smaller pieces where most of it just goes towards the fees of paying for that input and li- there's little benefit to, to actually funding the transaction, but you have no other funds and that's what you need to do. So you you want to sort of find a middle path where you are very thrifty when the fee rates are high, but then when the fee rates are low, you're you're looking ahead and already cleaning up cleaning house a little bit. The other thing is, of course, I think that especially with with the huge adoption of pay to taproot now, I hope that more wallets are going to be able to send to pay to taproot outputs and also use them for inputs. I think for multisig, there is the biggest savings, obviously, because even with modern output types, you still have the actual two or three multisig, for example, written out in an output and input, and it takes more block space to do so. But if you know that two keys are more often used to make this bend, you can immediately make that your music key path spend and then have the same footprint as a single sig. So I'm pretty happy to hear that, for example, services like BitGo already have on-chain support for music and can, with their two or three multi-sig setup, make payments that look like single sig on-chain. And they'll they'll essentially, even if, they're, if their user switches over from paid to witness script hash, will save something like 40%, 43%, I think, on each input at the same cost for the outputs. So I, I would just say you you have to have both a long-term perspective in your UTXO use and a short-term perspective. You want to switch over to more modern output types if you want to save money. And then finally, the the game of getting confirmed in the first place means that you, your transaction has to bubble up to the top of the mempool. Miners generally include everything they see in the mempool from the top one block into their block templates. And when they succeed, you get your confirmation. So at some point, your transaction has to be among the first block of transactions waiting. But you basically have two strategies getting there. One is you just overpay in the first shot. And then even if there's a slow block, you're pretty sure that you get confirmed quickly. The other way is to 
start with a conservative bid and then to to bump up the priority of your transaction if it takes longer than you want. And for those, we have two mechanisms. One is the sender or the receiver, anybody that gets paid by a transaction can do a child pays for parent transaction. And this is nice because the TX ID of the original transaction doesn't get changed. It's open to the receiver and it's fairly simple to implement. A lot of wallets have support for it, but it's kind of bad because you're in a situation where your original transaction didn't get through because there was too much block space demand and other people are outbidding you. And now you have to add more transaction data to this package in order to get the transaction through at a high fee rate. So you add a second transaction that you also have to pay f- for at the high fee rate, and y- you're basically already in a high fee rate scenario, right? So more efficiently generally is if you can to use RBF to completely replace the original transaction and make a conflict. So your replacement transaction has to use at least one of the same inputs. Generally, you would include the same payments, maybe even batch two or three transactions together to combine the payments into a single transaction. And then only pay for the payload once, only have a small set of inputs to create all of those transaction outputs in one transaction. And you outbid your own original transactions with a higher fee rate and a higher absolute fee in order to to replace them. So I I wish that more wallets would generally build their transactions signaling replaceability and have options to bump transactions directly so users can make conservative estimates first and then bump up as needed. And I think finally what we also mentioned in the article was Of course, especially if you have a high-volume wallet, you can build your transactions in that manner in the first place by batching payments, multiple payments into a single transaction, because then you only pay this transaction overhead for the header transactions once, and you might be able to get away with a single input for many payments and a single change output for many payments, because every time that you create a change output, of course, you incur a future cost as well, where you have to spend that UTXO later too. So if you split up many payments into uh, separate transactions, every time you pay for the transaction header and almost every time you'll pay for the change output and have to spend the change output later. But if you make a batch payment, you only get that, you, you share that overhead cost across all payments. Yeah, sorry, I've been talking a lot. I think I've covered most of what we wrote in our ad article. Did I miss anything? Any questions, comments? My comment would be really great job of condensing a ton of Bitcoin tech and best practices that Optech has been recommending over the years into one explanation, including batching, consolidation, selection of inputs, using modern output types and some of the new tech like music, all into one verbal explanation, but also also the write-up. So applause for you for that. Waiting for confirmation number four, fee rate estimation. So luckily, Gloria has returned this week to join us to talk more about this weekly series. 
And last week's topic was all about techniques you could use to minimize your transaction fees, including things like modern output types, coin selection considerations, payment batching, and more. And this week, the topic is transaction fee rate estimation. So maybe to lead in, Gloria, how do we think about what a transaction's fee rate should be? Yeah, so again, I kind of want to preface this with like, the hope for this series is to start conversations about how we can make things better for all the users of Bitcoin. And so it, it may seem weird that I've dedicated like an entire post to fee rate estimation, but I thought it's like a space that's really ripe for innovation and you know there's a lot of work we can do to make things better and it's very multifaceted interesting so hopefully someone's been nerd sniped or will be nerd sniped by this post but yeah so the question was how do we think about fee rates so fee rate estimation the goal is to translate a target time frame for which you want your transaction to get confirmed to a minimal fee rate that you should pay so obviously if you pay like I don't know, a Bitcoin on your transaction, it'll probably get confirmed pretty quickly. But you want to pay as little as possible, of course. And kind of the main point of this post is to say that fee estimation is really hard for a few reasons. One, the supply is unpredictable. Number two, the demand is unpredictable. And number three, the information isn't always public to you and can sometimes be gamed, really. So kind of an overarching idea for this series so far has been to create this public efficient auction for block space so like when when i talk about like information not being public or being gameable for example if we only looked at the fees of transactions included in blocks basically the miners could put artificially high fee rate transactions in their blocks to drive up fee rates if we had a very you know silly, naive, fury estimator that I did that. Anyway, so back to kind of supply and demand being unpredictable. Blocks don't come every 10 minutes exactly. And that is a really sucky, I think, UI UX problem for Bitcoin. But it's, you know, part of what makes fury estimation hard. So for example, if the merchant gives you 30 minutes to send the payment before they give the goods to you, but the next block takes 45 minutes to be found, you can get kind of screwed. But of course, like sometimes, you know, you find three blocks in a row in the span of a few minutes, right? And like these kinds of things are, I guess, a UX problem. It's not just like a, you know, how do we write a piece of software that's really good at estimating things. But of course, there's also the other side of the coin is that demand is very unpredictable. Of course, we all know that there are huge fluctuations in volume and sometimes you can get blindsided by that. And sometimes your transaction can fall out of mempool and that's a whole other problem. And yeah, so like the estimation is really hard. I talked about two kind of existing fee estimators that I'm aware of. One is mempool space, which I think is is pretty accurate. I think a lot of people use mental space, I imagine. And their kind of approach, hopefully if there's someone on the call who can correct me if I'm wrong here, is essentially you have a really good view of what's in miners' mempools and you can almost just like calculate what's gonna be in the next n blocks. So you take the mempool and you run the block assembler algorithm and you're like, all right, to get into the nth block, I can literally just build n blocks and then tell you what the fee rates of those transactions are. And of course, I imagine that to do this 
kind of accounting for other transactions that might come in. And the next, you know, time frame is to build with kind of a, a decreased block size to account for like, okay, there's other people that might send transactions at these fee rates and they'll fit into, into these empty spaces in the blocks that we're, you know, projecting. And so that's one. It very much relies on all of your information being accurate, like what's in your mempool actually being what miners are going to mine. And, and maybe that's very appropriate for something like mempool space where you have a lot of nodes, you have a very good idea of what transactions are in, in miners' mempools, and maybe even have a good, good idea of what out-of-band fees they might be accepting. So that's that's one one pre pretty accurate as far as I know, like fee estimation algorithm. And then there's also like Bitcoin cores, which kind of tries to sidestep the problem of non-public information by not trying to record it. So Bitcoin cores, the estimation algorithm is looking at transactions as they come into your mempool and then recording when that happens and then recording when you then see them confirm. And then it's kind of, it's historical data based. And of course, if you have miners like putting artificial high fee transactions into their blocks, then that won't, that won't impact your fee estimation since you won't see them at the time. So that's kind of trying to avoid this like gameability aspect of potentially like trying to just use the information available to you. But I, I think there's, yeah, so like that, that's highlighting kind of two, two fee rate estimation algorithms that I'm aware of. I think both of them have room for improvement. Both of them are perhaps more appropriate for the user that they're, the piece of software that they're designed for, like Bitcoin Core, hopefully is, you know, just an individual user running, you know, their Raspberry Pi node or their laptop node or, you know, trying to have an independent fee estimator and not relying on centralized APIs. And hopefully Bitcoin Core gives them a nice, you know, trustless fee estimation based on public information. And then Mental Space, you know, has access to more information and hopefully can, can give you a more precise result, but perhaps requires you to have a very, very accurate idea of what miners are going to mine. So yeah, it's it's a multifaceted, fascinating problem. There's a mixture of UIUX, you know, maybe there's room for like data-based intelligent modeling of, of, you know, forecasting demand. It's in like data scientists on the case. I, I, I feel like, at least Bitcoin Core, I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement. And hopefully someone comes and, and looks at our fee estimator and opens a PR or something. That's kind of my goal. Gloria, you mentioned sort of in the, just now and also in the post that forecasting block demand space is ripe for exploration. And you mentioned some examples of that. You mentioned data science, but you also mentioned in the post about certain activity patterns that may occur or certain times of, of the day or, or business hours or external events that can mess with fee rates. I know that there was like the BitMEX withdrawal at 8 a.m. Eastern time every day. I, I think that's gone now, but I think that was a big known thing. Are you aware of anybody working on like sort of some supplemental external events or otherwise ways of doing fee estimation? I am not 
at all. I mean, like Merch will tweet about it and he'll, you know, be able to point out patterns. And I'm sure we all, you know, do a little bit of thinking about like, I don't I don't know of anybody who's like actually, I don't know, building a model or like, I mean, surely like, surely maybe like we can start with like a hackathon project or something to to start plugging in data and, and seeing, oh, well, I think what we should do really is first try to build a framework for like fee rate estimation accuracy. Oh, I think Josie, Josie, Bake, Josie Baker has, has built like a really nice IPython notebook that draws a few graphs and has some tooling for like parsing the, at least Bitcoin core fee estimation database. That, those are like the only people that spring to mind. I'm, I'm very sorry if there is totally like someone who's like just dropped a paper on this, for example. Anyone had like knows anything, please like see me. I, I feel like this is something that is almost like a low hanging fruit almost. Like we could definitely improve or like there's some very obvious things that we can do to try to like get started, like making things better. I just, you know, anyone listening, interested? please do something. <laughs> Dave, a lot of interesting points here from, from Gloria. Do you have anything to augment or, or questions for Gloria on this topic? No, I thought this was a, a very well-written post, so I don't really have any questions. Related to your previous question about people working on better fee rate estimation, a few years ago, Cali M., who we already mentioned in this podcast, he had a project called the Mempool Monitoring Project, where basically he just recorded every transaction that hit his node, when it hit his node, when it got confirmed, and just details like that in a historical database to provide the information for future research efforts. I don't know where that went, but you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you could use for And he also had the idea of one of the things we have with theory estimation is that it's kind of self, you know, recursive in the sense that when fee rates go high, the fee rate estimator tends to return high fee rate, high fee rate estimates. Everybody starts paying higher fees. And then when there's a small spike in demand or a loss in supply, fee rates go higher. The fee rate estimator turns even higher fees. And so it, it kind of just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. And it falls off a cliff all of a sudden when demand drops just a little bit and whatnot. And so Kelly also had the idea. I don't know that it was his idea, but he was working on a, a test implementation of having fee rates set to the lower bound of what was currently in the mempool versus what the statistical-based fee rate estimator does. So kind of a synthesis of the two approaches that Gloria describes in her post right now. Just, just synthesizing those two and taking the minimum of that and returning that as the fee rate for transactions that could be easily fee bumped with RBF. And I guess that would bring me to one other point I'd like to make is that if you don't have fee rate estimation, basically what you're stuck doing is setting a transaction at a very low fee rate waiting some amount of time for it to confirm, and then RBF fee bumping it. And you just keep doing this until all of a sudden it gets confirmed. And you can do this. So this is your, as far as I know, your only alternative for trustless fee management to running your own node with a mempool is to just iteratively RBF fee bump your transactions until it gets confirmed. And that's 
kind of a bad UX in the sense that it takes a long time before you get to the rate of the current mempool. And you're probably still going to overpay too by some amount. So I think fee rate estimation is a, it's an interesting topic. It's good to explore. It's good to see how far we can get at making good estimates considering the, like Gloria said, unpredictability of the supply and demand. I guess I could throw one more point here is a few years ago, some researchers posted a paper to Bitcoin Dev suggesting we change the way the auction works. And the idea was that you overpay your fees, but you get a refund. So miners have to claim every transaction in a block at a consistent fee rate. Every transaction block pays the same fee rate, but you can overpay your fee rate and get a refund of the difference between what you paid and what miners claimed. So the low, the cheapest fee in a trans, the cheapest fee rate claimed in a block would be the fee rate that applied to all transactions in the block. Unfortunately, this does not work with Bitcoin's UTXO model, at least not very well. You'd have to make a horrible hack of it. But man, I think that would be a great improvement. So that's it for me. So, so how would that work then? Transaction fees would be collected by the miner and, and when the block is mined, essentially users who are transacting and who have tra- transacted over that average or, or whatever that, that, that cutoff is would, would get paid out in the Coinbase or, or be a, sort of like a, a mining pool kind of thing to get, to get their refund? So it was designed kind of in mind of the Ethereum account model. So in Ethereum, you have an account with... A balance. So if we think of the Ethereum, the way it would work in Ethereum is that all the transactions in the block would say, okay, you can use up to one F of my balance to pay the transaction fee to get my transaction in a block. And the miners would take all the transactions they could. Again, they would pull them by what would be most profitable for the miner. And they would choose the lowest you know, the, whatever the lowest fee, the lowest paying transaction they include in the block, they would take 100% of that transaction's allocated fee. But the highest transaction, they may only take 5% of its fee, and the rest would stay in the Ethereum account. Now, in Bitcoin, we don't have accounts. That's what makes this a really sticky proposal, is that you'd basically have to have the miner, like you say, in the Coinbase transaction, issue a bunch of outputs for every transaction in that block. So if you had 4,000 transactions, the Coinbase transaction would have to have 4,000 outputs at about 40 bytes each, which is just insane. I think Mark Friedenbach had a proposal for how to do this, and it's something that becomes a little bit more possible with Covenants, because Covenants can kind of get us towards an account model. If you want that, it's bad for privacy. It has all these problems applying it to Bitcoin. I just wanted to mention it in case somebody's listening and can think about a really, really clever way to make that possible because it just allows you to say, this is the highest fee rate I'm willing to pay for my transaction, get it done. And yeah, that would be nice. This entry is called Policy for Protection of Node Resources. And Gloria, I think Bitcoiners are probably familiar with the concept of hey, we want to keep resource requirements low so that it's easy to run a node so that anybody can run a node and we can keep this Bitcoin network 
decentralized. So that would include being able to run a node on a variety of operating systems or a variety of commodity hardware yep. with reasonable memory, CPU and network bandwidth requirements. So, and we have that. So great, we have low system requirements to run a Bitcoin node. So we're good, right, Gloria? Yeah, well, that's that's something that, you know, is something we have to, to maintain and in the way that we write the code. Of course, having support for various platforms is something you have to maintain over time. But there's there's also a, a second reason why policy is important, which is, you know, Bitcoin, r- running a Bitcoin node is signing up for a rather like adversarial security slash threat model, right? Like if you're running a node and connecting to the peer-to-peer network, you're kind of signing up to have internet connections with randos who you you have no idea who they are in real life there's there's no way to kind of try to guess whether or not they're malicious and there's not really a way to effectively ban them either because you don't know who that real life entity is you couldn't like have some kind of legal process to be like hey this guy dosed me so really like the only thing you can do while operating in this adversarial environment where you are accepting or if you're making internet connections, you may be accepting connections from inbounds and like essentially allowing them to send you data to process. And then you're going to allocate, you know, CPU and memory and network bandwidth to process this data. The only, the only thing you can really do is, is program defensively to prevent DOS attacks. And this, I don't know, it's, it's pretty cool. I haven't, I haven't worked on many other software projects where this is the security model, it's very interesting and it, and it makes you know keeping the, like protecting node resources not only an ideal but an imperative right so I, I i've gotten a lot of questions from people saying like oh like what you know why why does policy like why would you have validation rules on top of consensus like isn't that censorship but like i, I think there's a really good bitcoin talk post that i linked to in in this in this article where people are kind of imagining like what is kind of the maximally computationally intensive consensus valid transaction that you can create. And, you know, it's a combination of, you know, signature verification, which is very computationally expensive, as well as quadratic zig hashing, which is pre-segwit. But, you know, if, if you combine those into a transaction with thousands of inputs, you know, within the block size limit, then you get something that could maybe take minutes to, to validate. And, and we've seen one in, in the wild. Rusty Russell has a nice blog post that I also linked to in there about this mega transaction that apparently took 25 seconds on average to validate using Bitcoin Core at the time. And this is not really something you want to sign up for when you're when you're just trying to run a bitcoin node to you know relay transactions and and all that so that's 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 the best reason i'd say to to, or you know one of the best reasons to have policy so yeah if you if you're interested read the post there's some examples of of policies in there. So even though on the box, when you look at Bitcoin core system requirements, that they are quite low, and that that's not that's not the solution to, to solving being able to run a node. You also need a series of 
policy heuristics and best practices in place to also make sure that you can continue to run that node into the future. Otherwise, you're abused by potentially malicious peers on the network. And you go through in this post a series of examples of of policy that is designed to ensure that someone can be running a node with this minimal sort of hardware that we outlined at the beginning. So I, I thought it was a great post. Thank you for putting it together. You mentioned a few of the links that were pertinent, but but there's a few other examples also in there that I think if, if folks are interested, they should jump into in terms of transaction relay policy, et cetera. Joost? Yeah, one thing I was wondering about the mega transaction example, like that you need to prevent things like that from happening using policy. Is, isn't that an indication that really the set of valid blocks should be should be reduced, like basically like soft forking and, and not allowing blocks that have so many of these operations? Or is it that this is like a dynamic value depending on current hardware capabilities so you can never really hard code that in the consensus layer? So basically, we never want to make any transactions that people could have created in the past and thrown away the signatures, sorry, the the keys for it, but only kept the signatures invalid. So we we try to keep the consensus rules as lenient as possible and not potentially steal or destroy funds of people that they may have vaulted in some way. So in that regard, we, we try not to make the space of what possible transactions could be included in the future smaller unless we can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. That's, that, that. That makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I wanted to note is that I understand policy as a way to accomplish goals like this. But in the discussion of the annex, for example, I, I can also feel that there's, there's like also different ways in which the, the policy has quite a bit of power. So we're talking about the exact format for the annex. And then it seems that policy is a way to enforce a particular format, which is not really related to DOS, like whether you want, for example, a TOV format or a different format. Policy is going to determine what what will be possible, but it's not directly related to DOS. So I was wondering like, how, how you guys think about that, using using policy to enforce such, such things as a format. Yeah, so just to be clear, hopefully I made it clear that DOS is not the only reason why, why we have policy, and there's going to be a few more posts in this series. Let me try to finish her thought, unless she is going to be back in seconds. But we're planning a few more posts in this series, and one one is going to be protecting network resources. So not only do we have to protect individual nodes from being dust, but there are also resources that are just expensive for the network in, in whole. For example, the size of the UTXO set incurs a cost on every node on what amount of data they need to scan in order to see whether new transactions are valid. And then another post will be about the mempool as an interface for other layers. So, for example, the Lightning Network, of course, uses mempool or has other requirements on unconfirmed transactions than on-chain transactions. Let me see. What else is there? Yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid that I forgot what, what exactly the question was. Whether we yeah. can use policy as, as a way to shape what annexes are allowed? 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. But I'm understanding that they may be running ahead of like further episodes in this series, right? So yeah, maybe, maybe I don't think that we had planned so far to specifically mention the annex. But one of the things that we wanted to do ever since the issue around Bash 32 and upgrading it to Bash 32M, delaying all these services that now are, are lagging behind in in adding support for sending to well page to tapered outputs, is we would love for all the future upgrade mechanisms to, by default, not get created by wallets, but to get relayed. Like if if a node understands it, that they can forward it to other peers that understands it, understand them. But like f for certain update mechanisms to to be pretty lenient on the policy, so that if your node is not upgraded yet, it will not black hole the transaction that it sees. But yeah, I, I think I have to ponder this a little more before I, I can specifically comment on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Merch mentioned a, a few potential topics for the rest of this series. And to tease the next one for next week, we, we state here in the segment that we point out the policy is not consensus and that two nodes may have different policies, but still agree obviously on the current chain state. And so next week we'll discuss policy as an individual choice. Gloria, I see you're back. I'm giving you speaker access again. Welcome back. Sorry, I've been having Wi-Fi issues today. I'm not sure if you were able to listen to the last couple minutes, but Merch was sort of giving us a preview of some of the f future segments in this series, including, and I think you were talking about this, Gloria, that, that DOS protection of the individual node is not necessarily the only reason for policy, but also network resources as well. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna explore some other examples and reasons and, and and talk about a lot of the limitations that we have in mempool policy and what ideas we might have to improve them. So I, I hopefully have not at any any point given the impression that I think policy is perfect <laughs> in Bitcoin Core. The goal of this this series is to start conversations and try to collaborate to improve things. So yeah. This is waiting for confirmation number six, titled Policy Consistency. And Merch, last week we talked about policy rules, which are these additional set of rules around transaction validation that are applied in addition to Bitcoin consensus rules. And since these policy rules aren't consensus, someone operating a node kind of has a large degree of subjectivity about which policies to enforce and to what degree. Merch, maybe you can opine a bit. What, what do you think listeners should be thinking about when considering their policy specifically relative to the rest of the network? Yeah, it's funny that you're starting off like that because we originally had titled this section as policy as an emergent construct from individual choices. But the more we looked into all the settings that we provide in Bitcoin Core and thinking about the use cases in which people might want to change them, we found that actually we expose very little of the policy rules to user configuration. And we have not come up with a ton of, of choices that users can make right now that make sense to us. So m mostly the things that I've that I've brought along as 
ones that can be changed easily are how quickly transactions expire from your mempool and how big your mempool are is. And those, I think, are mostly relevant if you're doing some sort of data analysis or if you have a reason to keep transactions around longer than than usual. Other than that, it actually seems to me that we have been fairly conservative in providing options to change policy. And I want to get a little more into why that is the case. So I think this is a little touched upon before in the other posts that we have made. But really, overall, our goal is that every mempool has the same transactions, because when we have the same content in our mempools, all of us can estimate better the fee rates, we can better anticipate what will be in the next block, and we can relay blocks more quickly using compact block relay. But of course, the transactions, unconfirmed transactions are not protected by proof of work. They are just anyone can write them. Anyone can write multiple versions that spent the same UTXOs. So they're a DOS vector that is much more accessible to users than, for example, blocks, because blocks have to be con- uh, under ha- have to be substantiated with proof of work, and therefore it's really expensive to to create any meaningful amount of data to propagate blocks with. So, so while our goal would be to have homogeneous mempools across the network, we actually only forward transactions at best effort across the network. So we are trying to get every transaction to everyone, but we can't guarantee it. And especially in a dynamic environment where nodes come online and go offline at will, they might just not be around when a transaction is relayed to them and or when when a transaction is first submitted to the network and relayed among peers. And it doesn't make sense to to go back and continuously rebroadcast all transactions as that will just increase the bandwidth use. And for the most part, the, the nodes that do absolutely need to get all transactions, they tend to be online all the time anyway. So yeah, does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Keep going. Okay, so one one point that has come up a little bit also in the context of increasing your mempool size and your expiration times is that it changes what interactions you can have with fee bumping and CPFPing transactions. So for example, if your parent transaction has too low of a fee rate and the fee rate gets enforced individually on every transaction right now because we don't have package relay yet, then you wouldn't be able to submit the parent transaction to your own mempool anymore if it's below the mempool's dynamic minimum fee rate. So if you have a bigger mempool, of course, you can still submit the parent transaction and then submit the child transaction with the high fee to have a package fee rate across the two of them that is sufficient to get mined. But you're sort of lying to yourself a little bit if none of your peers have similarly big mempools and therefore none of your peers accept the parent transaction. And therefore you see your package in your mempool, but it still doesn't get to the miners because none of your peers actually accept it to their mempools and so it doesn't get relayed across the network. Similarly with with RBF, if your mempool is smaller, you might drop transactions earlier than other people and then would be able to 
submit a new transaction that spends the same inputs that gets accepted to your mempool because your mempool no longer has the original that was in conflict. And you don't have to consider the RBF rules in that case because the original is already gone from your mempool. So you don't need to have, you don't have to exceed the absolute fee. You don't have to exceed the fee rate by a certain margin. You just can submit a new transaction. But again, if nobody else has the small mempool as you, they might still have the original and they will apply the RBF rules if your transaction hasn't signaled replaceability or even if it has signaled replaceability you you need to overshoot by a certain margin for for the replacement to overwrite the original so whenever your your mempool size differs from that of your peers you might be able to have interactions with your mempool that are not replicated across the network and therefore might not have the effect that you intend across the network and especially in the miners mempools and what I'm basically saying is if we all generally run with the same values for our mempools, we will experience the best outcome because our mempools will behave similarly. When you can submit new transactions to your mempool, you can expect them to also be submitted to other people's mempools. You can expect them to arrive at the miners. And yeah, in a way, I'm I'm hoping that it illustrates why we should all be converging on similar policies. And right now I actually don't see a ton of policies where where people should have vastly diverging opinions unless they have specific use cases. Like for example, mempool.space certainly wants to run with a bigger mempool in order to show all the transactions that are still waiting that, that most nodes have dropped already. Or yeah, that might also make sense for a miner. But yeah, that that's pretty much the, the gist of our post this week. Do you feel that lately, these last six months, since there's been a bunch of interesting protocols using the Bitcoin blockchain, that there is a pressure to change any of these policy rules? So for example, we've had Yoast on and there's there's other individuals and projects that are doing things like relaying certain transactions through Noster. And we have people submitting non-standard transactions directly to miners to get four megabyte transactions approved or for whatever reason, routing transactions to mempool spaces, new transaction accelerator, et cetera. Like, are, are those, in your mind, pressures to loosen the policy in, in any way at the, at the Bitcoin core level? I think it's certainly pro- a prompt to look at whether all of our standardness rules and policy settings still make sense. And there was also a very good write-up by Instagips recently with that we want to actually get into a little bit next week that that looks at all the policies and the reasons why we have those. So if you can can wait a little, we'll we'll have something on that next week, hopefully. But for the most part, so while while Bitcoin is a system that is stupid at the protocol level and the intelligence mostly sits on on the edge of the network where people can can craft more complicated contracts, but on the chain we we only see like the predicates the some some sort of logical prompt that is 
proven to be afforded or or that that has been fulfilled by some witness that that's the system that we have we, we don't want to run the smart contracts where everybody has to run the smart contract on their own machine in order to see what the outcome was we we want to have the smart contracts where People prove that they have fulfilled the conditions of the contract and you never need to learn what the conditions were. So when when I think about what I want to see in the Bitcoin network and what my focus is, it's Bitcoin, the currency, and that's that's my focus. Honestly, I, I see people doing inscriptions, for example, and while that's all fine and dandy and they can can use the blockchain as a very inefficient medium for publishing data. I don't think that's what we're interested in developing and building. So if they have a bit of a hype for a few months and increased demand for block space, that's that's fine. And it seems to be tapering off now. And that's more than fine as well. But other than that, I have not really seen big pressures or good, well-funded or founded, well-founded reasons for revisiting standardness. There was a proposal to drop all standardness rules, which I don't think showed any good evidence that this is the right way to go. There is, of course, the use case that we don't have package relay yet, which was an issue for Lightning implementations around the peak fee rates, where they ran into the issue where they couldn't submit parent transactions anymore in order to CPFP them. And maybe that's a good makeshift solution until we do get package relay on the network to to have a way to get parents with their children to minors, or maybe minors should should have a way to allow you to submit that directly to them intermittently. But in the long run, we want that to be fixed at the protocol level where people are able to to submit the most worthy transactions to be mined in a way that it propagates on the network proper. So, yeah, I have not seen a lot of evidence that our standardness rules are completely wrong. I don't think that inscriptions offer whatsoever any reason to change standardness. And, yeah, we're working on the one for for Lightning. In a previous post, we outlined some considerations around using policy to protect a node's resources. And in this post, we're talking about protecting network resources. So maybe to start, Gloria or Merch, whoever feels comfortable, maybe we can outline some examples of what are Bitcoin's network resources in the way that we're thinking about it in this post. Well, uh, how about I just start because I... uh... I, I wrote most of this. Um, so some of the network resources that we're trying to protect in the Bitcoin network are, of course, just the overall blockchain size, the UTXO set as a um, representative of the current state of the network. And um, we want to protect the upgrade hooks. So we we have a bunch of mechanisms still in place that are currently allowed by consensus to be used, but in policy uh, protected in order to, to have a smooth upgrade path for later soft forks and, and protocol changes. So uh, those are the three that, that come to mind. 
And then Merch, I think we, we outlined in the protecting of the individual node resources, some examples of how those particular resources are, are protected. And so I guess in this case, how are we protecting those three different kind of resources that you've outlined? Yeah, um, so, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking pretty hard right now. <laughs> Gloria, do you wanna jump in? Or... Yeah, I mean, the general theme is like, yeah, we have standardized rules to kind of just stop things or put a price on things that we consider um, taking up various network resources. I think um, one of the best examples in here is about adding arbitrary data into the blockchain. Um and how you know it the blockchain is like this highly replicated perpetual storage that you can get tens of thousands of people to store forever for you um and so you know of course there's going to be demand for that um and then i think recently there's been kind of lots of we generally in Bitcoin, I think we have a kind of a culture of like, oh, yeah, protect network resources, keep ETXO set small, keep blockchain size small so that new nodes can bootstrap. And, you know, it, we keep the cost of running a node small and it's feasible to do it on a Raspberry Pi, et cetera, et cetera. So, for example, with people, you know, putting JPEGs or putting any kind of arbitrary data um, into their transactions, people feel that that needs to be stopped. Um, like they're like, oh yeah, maybe like add a rule to, you know, prevent quote unquote arbitrary, useless, wasteful data in transactions um, because we, you know, we have lots of standardist rules right now that are already censoring quote unquote. Um, and my take on that is. You know, as as protocol developers, I don't think there we have a place in saying like what is legitimate payment and what is legitimate data to stuff into the blockchain and what is like wasteful or you know not real payments or you know I, I think that goes against kind of the whole philosophy of Bitcoin. Um, but so, for example, this idea of adding new like arbitrary pushing arbitrary data on chain there are various costs associated with that. So I think, again, the best example in here, I think is talking about um, putting it into a bare multi-sig versus putting it into an op return. I think the introduction of op return, like a single op return, quote unquote, null data or data carrier output was made standard um, as kind of a way where it's like, okay, you know, you know, we're, we're not going to tell you that this arbitrary data is useful or not useful or meaningful or not meaningful. Um, but if you're going to do it, put it in an op return so that we don't have to put it in the UTXO set, for example. Um, so I think that's the best one that I would point to within the article. Merch has something to say, so I'll hand the mic back to you. Yeah, so I, I think people realize that it is impossible to prevent people from uh, publishing data on the blockchain. And as Gloria already uh, mentioned, um, it is very attractive to have at least a few small pieces of data in, in the blockchain where it will essentially live forever. And when you cannot prevent people from doing that, we can at least maybe encourage some best practices where we um, get people 
if they need to do it to do it in a way that it doesn't pollute the UTXO set doesn't um, um, at least doesn't live in this this piece of state that we have to um, keep around forever because we use it to validate transactions to validate blocks. Um, so yeah, we we introduced up return outputs uh, to basically have a path to cater to this need without encouraging the worse ways of doing that. And so in, in a way, the, the resurgence of uh, the stamps recently is really unfortunate because bare multisig was essentially completely unused. And uh, when when people then say, oh yeah, we we do actively want to publish to the UTXO set rather than just a blockchain. So people have to keep it forever in the active data rather than than just a blockchain. That that sounds uh, a little uh, counter to to how we would like people to behave on the network. Um, given that we have this huge global state. It's, it's essentially like if you have a class of students and you're making every student correct every other student's homework, um, you're, you're probably going to get a few people that are um, very stringent about it and find every mistake. But it's also a lot of replicative work. And that's what we're doing with the blockchain. Every single node is looking at every other single node's submissions to the network. So we we want to keep that small in order to scale up. We we embody a lot of the um goals for our network in in its um in the way the network is constructed and the peer-to-peer -peer nature of it. If we allow people to to just uh, waste network resources. We will not be able to run nodes at home easily. We will um, make it more expensive and less accessible. We will reduce the number of uh, entities that need to be um, convinced, coerced, or blocked to to get undue influence on the network. So, yeah, philosophically, we want the cost of running a node to be as small as possible so that we get a um, widespread, um, diverse set of node operators so that there's a lot of people that check each other's homework. And um, yeah, so the, the, the post here is mostly about that, how we uh, can use policy in lieu of consensus rules to um, encourage best practices to to encourage social behavior where people maybe take themselves back a little bit in order for for the whole network to be able to exist in its current form to to um, keep consensus uh, census sorry censorship resistance and um, yeah our uh, leaderless configuration of the network alive. Gloria, any further comments before we wrap up this section? Yeah, the, the biggest theme I wanted to get across was essentially like we have no business telling people, like we have no business censoring transactions on the basis of use case, um, but on the basis of what network resources we're trying to protect and are critical to like all of these ideological goals uh, we have, like I think like policies 
way, is a great way to do that. And I think one thing that we didn't mention actually in any of these posts was sometimes policy is like a way to add a rule to the network that really should be consensus. Um, but so it looks like Harding has a has his hand raised. So I, I kind of want to disagree with Gloria on this. And I'm, I'm sorry, Gloria, but um, I think maybe we do have a good reason to uh, make decisions based on use case. So as a node operator, I'm willing to serve data. And even if the government doesn't want me to serve that data in order to help protect other people's ability to use free money, which is what I think of Bitcoin as, as free, as in a sense of freedom, money. On the other hand, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily willing to run a node and to put my freedom at risk if I disagree with the government in order to serve other people's data, especially if that data is, let's say, breaking copyright law, or let's say that data is child pornography. Uh, and that's the kind of arbitrary data that some people want to store in the blockchain. Now, other people want to store other sorts of arbitrary data. For example, we had used on here a few weeks ago talking about using the annex to store data related to Bitcoin transactions, which Again, I'd be fine with that as a node operator, but as a node operator, I don't necessarily want to store people's uh, arbitrary data that isn't related to money. And so I think there is a reason to think of use cases here in the sense that we could lose node operators if those node operators felt like their goodwill is being abused. So that's just... I just wanted to put that out there as a as a take. Yes, I, sorry. What I meant by we is like as protocol developers. I don't think that if if you're writing, like let, let let's start with like consensus rules, right? I don't think it would be appropriate to have consensus rules that you know as devs we like impose on people. For, I, I mean, okay, sorry. How do I say this? Yeah, like at the protocol level. I don't think we should police based on use case at the node operator level. I think, yeah, it's totally an individual decision. Like if, if you want to change your node to like ban anything you think looks like a JPEG or, you know, any use case that you particularly dislike, I think that's like totally, that, that was what the last post was about was like policy as an individual choice. Um, but I, I don't know that it makes sense to, say like oh this jpeg okay something like child pornography is, is very like black and white but the types of decisions that are typically made by financial institutions that police who gets to use money and who doesn't i mean this is kind of how what we think about it in, in bitcoin right the types of decisions that they make are not really ones that i think are um suitable for what we're trying to do here if that makes sense so like difference between uh, we as a protocol developer making decisions and we as individual node operators making decisions. Uh, I see somebody else wants to talk, so I'll just go really quickly and just say, I don't think we necessarily have the tools to block the things that I would want to block. I say child pornography. I don't think we have the tools to block that at the consensus level. And so as protocol developers, we just, we can't really spend a lot of time thinking about that because we just don't have the tools. But if we had the tools, I think it would be very easy to get support to block that. So anyway, I'm finished. Thank you, Gloria. We have a speaker request from user Oflow. Go ahead. Hey, 
Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I actually agree with Gloria and lots of love and lots of respect to you, Gloria. Appreciate what you're doing. Um, I like to look at it similar to a dollar bill. Obviously, this is a bad example, but it's perfect for this situation. Anyone can have a dollar bill and choose to write over it and, you know, put anything on it. Obviously, some dollar bills that might be written on or might have beautiful art um, subjectively on it, but then the day it's a dollar bill is fungible you're able to go and spend it so that's the way I, I would look at it um once you start telling people that they can't um spend their dollar because it has a smiley face on it that fundamentally messes with bitcoin that's what i think um thanks for that comment uh gloria or merch anything anything else you'd like to say before we tease the next uh, post in the segment and move on. Yeah, I, w I wanted to sort of maybe have a comment on <laughs> a, a personal opinion on the Inquisition and, uh, sorry, Inquisition. What is it? Uh, the, the pictures that we, we've been... Inscriptions. Thank you. Uh, it's been a very long week. We have the Lightning Summit in New York this week, and uh, I've been talking to people all day, every day, and sorry, my brain's just fried. Um, so uh, with, with the inscriptions that we've been seeing on the network, I think it's totally fair that we, ex we focus on Bitcoin being for the uh, trying to be the uh, digital currency of the internet, for being a... Uh, attempt at creating a global currency and we don't really need to cater to every single use case i think uh, up returns for example being introduced as a means to make sure that there is a way for people to publish um, data a small amount of data um, without having too many consequences for other network resources is a good means of um, preventing it to happen in a worst case uh, or, or trying to mitigate because we cannot prevent. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking that um, I am completely unconvinced that having a platform to do BRC20 tokens is a good thing. I don't think that it serves our use case of having a, um, to, to achieve a global currency and um, so the, the harsh truth, though, is it's really hard to, to block these sort of proposals in an effective way uh, because we can sure block this incantation with which the data is pu pushed to the blockchain, but then they'll just come up with another one. And then we're, we're just going to get into an arms race, uh, a game of whack-a-mole where um, you just block specific uses and then and then eventually we come to a point where you just cannot have an open scripting system and uh, where where people can have maybe brilliant new ideas of how we can build a second layer protocol to to have um a scaling technology with which we can get the the currency of the internet use case um better facilitated so we we do want to have this open scripting system we do not want to play whack-a-mole so what can we really do as protocol developers to 
uh, curb disuse case, well, one thing we can do is to protect the growth of the blockchain and to basically have everybody grow their adoption against this very fixed limit and just have uh, use cases price each other out. And hopefully that makes the use case of currency uh, survive because um, money has a very high density of value for low amount of data and hopefully stuff like writing a series of 8-bit graphics to the network does not have the same value density but yeah i i see a few comments um maybe robin uh, you mostly said all the things that I just wanted to say. Like, first of all, it's impossible to permit it. And second, uh, the only way to really prevent it is to price these use cases out, out with higher value use cases. Um, the only thing I wanted to add is that I think the best way to do that is to increase the network effects, and which is, in the end, the number of users. And I personally see no way to friction to onboard users in a frictionless way um, other than adding side chains like BIP300 and stuff like that. I think that's the best solution to add enough people so that the monetary use cases become so value, valuable that they price out all the inscription things. Oflo? Yeah, so I, I like to look at Bitcoin for what it's functioning as and I see it as a settlement layer, and I like to compare it to one of the biggest settlement layers that we have in the world today, which is Fedwire. And yes, Fedwire is settling trillions of dollars per day, and Bitcoin literally can do that. The TPS, there is literally a small difference in TPS, and I agree with Robin in that regard. Nice to see you here. Um, that essentially the more adoption that we bring to Bitcoin, essentially the more funds that get settled on that settlement layer and pricing out arbitrary data is the, the way to go about it instead of specifically um, trying to you know, change the protocol in a way where we might specifically damage it or try and limit it from a consensus level because what's being done is not out of consensus, it's literally in consensus. And even if we look back at Satoshi, Satoshi literally put arbitrary data into Bitcoin. Not that what Satoshi does is the defining factor of Bitcoin, but specifically it has been done before and it's in the history of Bitcoin to do it. We have another speaker request here from Bitcoin Seco. Bitcoin yeah, yeah, hey guys. I got a question for Gloria. Um, you mentioned that to protect the network, uh, we need to introduce uh, policies. So what sort of policies are we talking about? Would there be like a, a dust limit on, um, on the transaction? Um, or what exactly can we, can we look forward to when you say policy, policy changes to curb uh, uh, unwanted use of, uh, of the network? Oh, yeah, I was mostly uh, referring to current policy, such as, um, yeah, exactly, like the like the dust limit. So, for example, let's imagine there was no policy and you could broadcast a maximum consensus, like block size transaction that just creates as many zero value UTXOs as you can fit Um and that costs nothing. And you just like do that over and over and you 
blow up the UTXO site. Um, so, you know, test limits say, yo, there's a, there's a minimum value on, on trends, on, uh, sorry, what's the, what's the name? And value on outputs <laughs> that you need to put on, on transactions in order for them to relay, for example. Um, merch has a hand raise. Do you want to? Yeah, I was going to mention we have a link in the newsletter that links to a gist by InstaGibbs where he goes over the policy policy zoo. And what he goes into is um, he gives a list of all the policies that we currently have uh, active on the network, and he categorizes them as in what motivations they have. So he looks at, is this to protect individual nodes against dust attacks? Is this for security where um, uh, transactions that that use certain, uh, that have certain properties can mess with um, with the network for no good reason? Uh, is this to protect upgrade hooks or um, to, uh, uh, anyway, so there, there's a link um, in in there that you can look at for for an overview of the current policies, and in general, I think we choose to use policies either when we cannot introduce a consensus rule because potentially there could exist transactions that were pre-signed for which the keys were destroyed that rely on being able to be uh, committed into blocks eventually at, I don't know, 20 years later. And if we now um, forbid new forbid upcodes that were live at some point in the network, we would prevent them from ever confirming their transaction. So we, we cannot prevent people from, from using previously acceptable upcodes but we can discourage their use on the network because, for example, um, they are really costly to validate for nodes, or uh, they they just are huge in the um, in the UTXO set, like bare multisig, for example. I, I see there is more speakers again. Uh, I have Robin? a follow-up question. Sorry, if you don't mind. Um, Yes, please. Sorry. How do you, how do you uh, how do you implement these policies? Is it like uh, co for consensus? Obviously, you either need the, the miners on board or the, the nodes on board. So, how does the policy get implemented? Is it just the uh, the devs just um, uh, just vote on it and then just uh, uh, release it in the like a like an update? Um, well, sorry. Okay. So I think policy changes relatively infrequently, um, but the process is not just the devs decide on something and then push it. Um, it toshi, um, and it, I think typically the process is like you post to the mailing list, you air it out, you talk to any type, any application that might possibly be using this field. So for example, if I'm trying to, you know, ascribe value in policy to version number three, for example, I will go and see if anybody else is using that. Um, and if somebody is, then I don't want to invalidate their thing. So I'm not going to propose that. But yeah, you like socialize it as best you can, you, you know, and then you propose it, and then you can put it behind a flag. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's kind of in the middle. It's not like you need all the miners to be on board. If you were to add a, a policy that causes them to lose money, I think they would probably 
hopefully say something and say, no, I don't want to run this. Um, but yeah, it's something in between just pushing it and getting everybody on board. Robin? Um, I just want to ask, there is no policy to prevent inscriptions, right? We can only make it more expensive and more complicated for developers, but we cannot really have any kind of effective policy that would really prevent inscriptions, right? I mean, we could, for example, reduce the acceptable size of input uh, scripts. We could, um, but, you know, uh, again, we we do want to be able to have a, a flexible scripting system. We, we afford that to ourselves. And putting in arbitrary limits on things may prevent us from using it in other ways later. So really stamping down on all of those um, errant block space demand increasers uh, feel, feels like uh, potentially a problem for the future. It feels like something that's in witness data. Oh, maybe this is like a hot take, but it feels like something in witness data and or something that is an op return where you don't store it perpetually and you might be able to throw it away. Um, and you don't have to demand everyone download it when they bootstrap or, you, you know, like stuff like that is almost like would very much prefer people using that if they're going to do it. I guess this is like my whole point is like if it's a choice between stuffing it into a bare multisig and stuffing it into witness data, I think it's pretty clear from the perspective of node resources which one we should prefer. We've been talking about how node and network resources can be protected using policy rules that are a bit more restrictive than Bitcoin's consensus rules. And then in this post, Gloria, you outline why those policy rules are important to socialize to the broader Bitcoin community, especially applications, second layer protocols and contracting protocols. Um, Gloria, you can take this wherever you want, but maybe you can explain a bit why socializing policy rules is important. And then maybe we can get into some of the examples of lightning transactions and adhering to those standardness rules a bit. Yeah, for sure. I think last uh, week's um, talk, sorry, you can hear the background noise. Um, last week, somebody asked a question of, you know, how easy is it to change a policy rule in Bitcoin Core? Can you just like unilaterally merge or, you know, do something? And the answer is, of course, no, because... For example, if someone is, you know, interpreting the inversion field a certain way or they're relying on it being able to relay and then suddenly you make that non-standard or, you know, you, essentially you can cause applications to no longer be able to use the network transaction relay to, to, to get their transactions uh, confirmed. So that's very, very bad. Um, and so... That's kind of like a baseline of, okay, we have an interface, like the, the transaction relay policy is an interface that we have to keep somewhat stable and be concerned about uh, keeping that way for the applications that use it and for applications that may want to use it in the future. Um, and then the other part of this post is talking about where those policies can really get in the way, um, particularly if you have kind of 
security assumptions or like you really rely on things being able to um, confirm and being able to say connect to the network and broadcast through the quote unquote normal mechanism um, and having it relay through the network to a miner. Um, and so in this is kind of like a general generalized statement, but let's say you're building a L2 protocol where you have a contract where you have spending conditions enumerated uh, between two untrusted counterparties. And um, the idea is to keep things off chain until somebody tries to cheat or something goes wrong and then you can always go on chain. And hopefully the security model is the same because you've already accounted for all of those potential paths and committed to those spending conditions. And there is some kind of time lock within which somebody can get their money back if the counterparty tries to cheat them. Um, now, of course, that kind of puts additional kind of uh, like reliance or dependency on being able to use transaction real or being able to get something confirmed. Like this, the series is called waiting for confirmation. Um, and, and here we're introducing this idea of like, well, you, you really need to get something confirmed. Otherwise someone might run away with your money. Um, and so pinning attacks which is defined in this post, is where someone is using some kind of imperfect heuristic or some kind of limitation in policy. Um, that is the result of, uh, for example, we tried to make a trade-off between DOS and incentive compatibility, and we said, hey, we're just, you know, the 26th transaction that's a descendant of something unconfirmed, you know, we want to limit that because of DOS reasons, but it could be an amazing CPFP um, and it would be incentive compatible to accept that. But we've made the trade-off where we said, okay, after the 26th or after the 25th, we're not going to take it. Um, and we're like, oh, okay, uh, that maybe wasn't right, the right trade-off or maybe that gets in the way of someone being able to emergency CPFP a commitment transaction, for example. And so how can we refine those trade-offs um, or refine these imperfect decisions um, that are made in policy to uh, enable use cases like, okay, in a shared transaction, we should guarantee that at least two parties are always going to be able to CPFP that transaction. So that's what carve-out is. Um, yeah, that's kind of a summary of, of the post. Merch has his hand raised, so I'll pass the mic to you. Yeah, I wanted to get a little more into how the policy rules are a interface between um, the expected behavior on the network and the needs of the app layer slash L2s. And um, you, you've already given some examples, but basically in the past few posts, we've talked a lot about how we need to uh, limit risk against DOS vectors and how we need to protect local resources on computers, uh, uh, the, the individual nodes that are participating in the network. But on the other hand, of course, we would love to give guarantees for transaction relay. So generally on the Bitcoin network, we do not have any guarantees for relaying unconfirmed transactions. We do have guarantees for block relay, uh, everybody needs to get new blocks, every every node, but not everybody needs to get every unconfirmed transactions. And that is especially a problem for second layer protocols that have a limited time window in which they require a confirmation 
Otherwise, as Gloria said, the counterparty might run away with their money. So um, I, th I think we, we want to stress here that the communication goes both ways. On the one hand, the, the limits and the policies and uh, changes to the policies need to be socialized to the broader Bitcoin community before they are uh, put into Bitcoin in order to give people a time to ch chime in and to, to um, make their concerns known. But on the other hand, the um, second layer protocols and, and apps need to um, consume the interface, uh, try to be creative with, with what's available and also communicate their needs in order for the right things to get prioritized. So for example, of course, we, We've had Gloria working on uh, package relay for, well, I don't know how long, two years now, and or almost three years, I guess, uh, because this is going to remove a lot of these issues and make it easier to to submit pa uh, transactions to the network in a way that they can consistently be relayed. So, yeah. Um, just wanted to stress how how this communication goes both ways and how how people shouldn't assume that uh, policy is made somewhere over there, but rather that it is an iterative process that can use feedback from many different uh, avenues. Yeah, and next week is going to be about some of the projects that exist or proposals um, at various stages in the process uh, to, to update some of the policies. Gloria or Merch, anything you'd like to, to tie off on this topic? And, and of course, if anybody has questions or comments, feel free to request speaker access or, or comment on the thread and we can try to get to your question as well. Well, I, I think many uh, many ink has been spilled about pinning in the last year or so. Uh, so this is one of the major concerns about uh, transaction relay pinning and then, of course, the high fee rates that have made it hard for people to get, for example, commitment transactions into uh, the mempool at, at all. Since the commitment transaction at the time when the last time the channel was updated commits to a specific fee rate. And in order to get a CPFP going, the parent transaction by itself at least needs to be able to get into the mempool. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a, this topic has been more relevant in the past three months than for a while because we, we had been, um, spoiled by really low fee rates for almost two years straight. Yeah, on the on the good side of that, it's getting a lot more review on package relay, which is nice. And yeah, it has been two years. It's, it's a hard problem. Bitcoin Seco, welcome. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hi Gloria. Hi Marge. Have a quick question, please. Um, it's it's a technical. I'm not too technical, but. You know, the, the policy that we're talking about, like implementing, how does that get applied? So if I'm running a node and like a really older version of it and it's locked, I mean, I'm not updating anything. 
usually with with regards to like uh, a user activated softbook you would have to uh, update your node but how does policy gets implemented like how on which layer which level does it get um like applied to the to the network how does the how does it work sorry i have that question please it's the same idea as consensus rules you would need to update your node uh, and that would include the the code that implements the new policy rules and yeah you, you wouldn't be enforcing them until you upgrade it all oh, right okay so it's just again i have to update the the node so if i don't then i i don't adhere to that policy right Exactly. Perfect. Makes sense. Thank you. To knit a little bit, um, it's a little different from consensus rules in the sense that um, things will generally still work if nodes implement different policies. So um, policy only affects directly what you will accept into your mempool and what you will forward to your peers. So if your node runs with a different policy, it might offer some transactions to its peers that they would not themselves accept or forward, or vice versa, it might not accept some of the transactions that other nodes would already accept and forward. For example, when uh, SegWit got updated, Sorry, when the Bitcoin network adopted the SegWit update, uh, old nodes will not accept SegWit transactions to their mempools and will not forward them. They will, however, accept them when they see it in, in a block. So, yes, you you choose your policy by updating your software. Some of the policies might even be changed by configuring your node differently. There's a few uh, settings that, that affect policy. But yeah, for the most part, you you pick them per the software that you're running. I see Gloria has another comment. Yeah, so um, you pointed out that since consensus rules are, I mean, hopefully all soft works, um, if before you upgrade, you might. So like you were talking about like whether you would accept something that somebody else wouldn't, um, and that like relationship is somewhat related to the fact that rules are being um, restricted in, in softworks. I think as a mostly general statement, I mean, I'm sure there are, um, there may be uh, cases where this isn't true in the future, um, a policy change would be a relaxation of rules. So before you upgrade, um, if everyone else is upgraded, then you would just be uh, blocking those transactions from entering your mempool. But of course, if slash when they get mined, um, you would have to download them as part of the block. Um, and then I guess if we're talking about distinctions between the way that policy and consensus would work when you're updating your node, with the policy changes, there would never be, or hopefully there's not, um, I, okay, maybe, but okay. Usually there's no like activation mechanism. So as soon as you start your node, you're going to start enforcing those new policy rules. Sorry, I just, I said that because there was a PR in the past to add an activation mechanism for a policy rule. Um, it wasn't merged, but it, I guess it's conceivable. Um, whereas with consensus rules, usually there's some kind of activation threshold where you're like, okay, you know, we're going to look at what miners are signaling in blocks. And then at this, you know, period, we determine that the software has activated whereas for policy it would just be as soon as you started your node after you upgraded it so can you um pick and choose between a policy and a consensus say for instance if i don't want segwit 
but the, the latest release uh, on the core does include a policy change. Can I can I pick uh, the policy and leave out the the segue, or do I, ha- do, I do I have not do I, do I have a choice? Um, so with the way that all of the software is bundled together right now, no. Of course, like if. I don't know, we get kernel one day and you can have a previous version of kernel with like a newer version of mempool policy built on top, then that would be possible. Like theoretically, yes, it's possible, but unfortunately, like you can't even update like the GUI without pulling in all the, like the rest of the code changes, right? Just simply because Bitcoin Core is currently this like massive uh, piece of software with a bunch of things not modularized. But the goal is, I mean, I, I, I agree with what you're hinting at with this question here that it's, you know, it's weird that we aren't more modular and you, you have to get all updates at once or none at all. Yeah. Gloria, was the policy to relax the minimum standard transaction non-witness size to 65 non-witness bytes was was a variant of one of those PRs merged? Yeah, so a few months ago, I can't, I, I feel like this went into 25. Um, so it used to be that the minimum non-witness size was 82 or 83. <laughs> I can never remember. Um, and the reason for that was it should be, 64 or it should be 65 um essentially to avoid ever relaying as exactly 64 byte um transaction um and that was relaxed by greg's pr who's in the chat actually hi um and so i guess as a concrete example we have just been talking about if you did not upgrade then if somebody sent a 70 byte non-witness series size transaction you would not accept that into your mempool but other people might so yeah. Yeah, I wanted to comment a little more on the difference between consensus and policy and how they're rolled up. Uh, you said that usually uh, con- consensus rules would need so- some uh, activation code and um, need the network to agree before they get become active, whereas for policy, we can roll them out on an individual node-to-node basis because we don't give any guarantees about um, propagation of unconfirmed transactions. So the mempool itself is not... Um, covered by consensus in the sense that we don't uh, converge on a single exact same mempool all across the network. Everybody has their own mempool. We try to get them as homogenous as possible, but we don't need to agree on it 100% for the network to work. So to have slight differences in how we forward and accept transactions to our mempools doesn't necessarily break anything. So it's it's fine for nodes to have slightly different rules. And that's also why we can relax rules. With consensus rules, if we relax rules, that's a hard for grid because new things that are acceptable by the more relaxed rules would break old nodes and make them stop follow the blockchain. Whereas for the mempool content, if you accept something into your mempool that others don't, that doesn't break anything. But for some of our discussion previously, there there are advantages to having more homogenous mempools. So there's that consideration as well, right? 
Yeah, of course, it's best if everybody upgrades together because then transactions relay more smoothly. It's not going to hit a bunch of black holes on the way to try to get to a miner. Um, and then compact block relay will work better if everybody has the same stuff. So, yeah, of course, it's like ideal if you know it's smoother i think people are always so surprised i'm like yeah it's best if everyone has the same stuff in their mempool but they're like but there's no such thing as the mempool it's like yeah but wouldn't it be great if there was um, but yeah it, it, the network should still function much better with different policies than with different consensus um, rules across the network Waiting for confirmation series number nine on policy proposals. Last week we talked about second layer protocols interfacing with transaction relay policy and including examples of existing anchor output and child pays for parent carve out techniques. And this week we build on some of the drawbacks to those techniques and explore some in progress efforts to address some of the limitations of those techniques and other limit limitations. We have Gloria and Merch, who are co-authors of this series. And so I guess I'll throw it out to either one of you. Um, what are the issues that we're referencing with these previous techniques and what sort of solutions are, are being worked on for the future? Yeah, so uh, the last post introduced the concept of pinning attacks um, as well as other issues and wanted to kind of give some hope in this post. Um, and we, so we talk about five different policy proposals and I was trying to kind of introduce them in a linear manner so that you can kind of see it from the point of view is like, oh, this like problem exists. Okay. We have this proposal to address it, but we still have these problems left. So this next proposal addresses some of them and then so on and so forth. And then, so it goes from package relay to V3 and cluster um, and uh, until ephemeral anchors at the end, which kind of, I think, addresses most issues and, you know, enables cool things like Ellen symmetry. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, we can start with kind of the anchor outputs model that we introduced in the post um, last week, um, where it still has a number of limitations. Let's say some are very annoying and then maybe some of them are just kind of cosmetic um so I, I think probably the worst one is that you end up overpaying on fees on commitment transactions for unilateral closes because you have to overestimate because if if it were to fall below the minimum fee rate then suddenly it's not going to get into any mempool and you won't be able to get it relayed regardless of the child that you put on there to see, uh, to fee bump then you have funds tied up into your anchor outputs. You have to put some value on them to meet the dust threshold. Um, and then carve out is quite ugly from a like layer one perspective. And it only works with one extra descendant. So for example, if you wanted to guarantee that N parties of a you know, more than two party channel uh, in some hypothetical uh, contracting protocol, or let's just say a coin join, um, the carve out 
which allows one extra descendant, only kind of guarantees that there will be at least two people who can attach a child to one of the outputs of their shared transaction. So it doesn't quite solve the kind of general problem of, oh, we always want to make sure that any of the participants can fee bump their shared transaction. Um, and then kind of on the more cosmetic side, maybe, but Greg says that this is a, a composability issue is that you have to put the one block relative time lock on all of the non-anchor outputs um, to prevent them from being spent. Uh, it goes back to the descendant pinning um, problem. Um, and then so that brings us to package relay and package RBF, which solves, uh, from what I hear, some, some of the more painful ones, um, like not being able to bump something below minimum fee rate, a mempool fee rate when congestion is higher. Um, and so hopefully that will save people money uh, since you won't have to overpay on on the commitment transactions in the future. And you can also get rid of the multiple anchor outputs. Uh, so, oh, I forgot to mention this. You need one anchor output per participant so that they can each spend it, right? Um, but if you have package RBF, for example, you just need one on each person's commitment transaction and they can just replace each other. So you don't need to ever bump the commitment transaction that somebody else um, broadcast. But of course, we still have uh, RBF pinning because we have these very kind of generous descendant limits in, in mempool policy where that kind of leaves room for someone to broadcast their commitment transaction and add a very large um, high fee but low fee rate um, child, which is not, you know, CPF, CPFPing anything, but it does add to the cost to replace that transaction. Um, and that variance is, is very, very high. So it could be, I don't know, let's say 90,000 virtual bytes. Um, and even at, you know, 10 sats per V byte, that's, that's quite a bit of money to, to potentially have to pay to replace that. Um, and so that's it's quite annoying. And so this is combined with some just general RBF terribleness. Um, I I have a little paragraph. Uh, we wrote a little paragraph in there about the fact that replacements don't need to necessarily confirm faster. Like they have to have pay more fees, but they don't necessarily need to have a higher quote unquote mining score. So if you were to build a new block template, this replacement transaction could potentially come later than the original. Um, and this is a this is a pinning problem for anyone can pay transactions where you can imagine they're able to like malleate this transaction to essentially confirm slower um, by making it the descendant of a say huge low fee rate ancestor in the mempool. Um, so this kind of brings us to cluster mempool. This is where I might tag Merchant because you did write this portion and yeah, um, because the problem with solving this is the fact that our ancestor descent limits, we've talked about this in multiple newsletters in the past couple months, um, just are way too permissive. And it just makes it infeasible to assess the mining score of transactions in mempools. Um, and so, yeah, Merch, you have your hand up. Do you want to jump in and talk about cluster mempool? Sure. So cluster mempool is an idea on how we would differently structure the data in the mempool data structure for um, keeping track of what's up for the next block. The current proposal um, will 
keep uh, information on the entire ancestor set of each transaction. And uh, so A, that has a problem that we will never discover if there's multiple children that are all trying to bump the same ancestors, uh, because uh, we would only pick the one that has the highest ancestor set fee rate out of those into the block first, and then look at the other ones, which then surprisingly have great fee rates. Uh, but with cluster mempool, what we would do is we would rather keep track of all related transactions, anything that has uh, transitively a connection through child or parent relations would be part of the same uh, data that uh, is relevant for for transactions. And in these clusters, we would um, linearize uh, the order. We would look at a cluster as a set of transactions and say, okay, if I just had this cluster and built a block from it, in which order would I pick all of these transactions? And we make that the order of the cluster. And then we can group those transactions inside of the cluster into chunks that are essentially packages with the best possible fee rate that is available in the um, by by grouping more. So, for example, if you had a cluster that is just a child and a parent, and the child has a higher fee rate, you would discover that you first have to pick the parent, of course. So it's in the linear order in front of the child. But the child has a higher fee rate, so you would chunk them together and treat them as one package. And the same thing would also work if you have two children that have higher fee rates. So we would sort of get um, the ability for descendants to pay for ancestors rather than just children paying for a single parent to reprioritize. Um, the, the cool thing about this approach is it would make it way simpler to build blocks and faster. It would also make uh, displacement out of the mempool uh, symmetric to, um, uh, sorry, when, when you, for example, when the mempool is full and we try to evict stuff, uh, we would know exactly what the last transactions are that we would be dropping from, uh, that we need to drop from the mempool because they would be the last thing that we'd mine ever. And that becomes symmetrical. Previously, it was easy for us to tell what the best thing is, what the, the transactions are that we would mine into a block first, but eviction was complicated and eviction becomes a lot easier. So, um, this is a little bit more on the researchy side still. There's a lot of um, exploration on what the algorithms would be for this and how it exactly would work. There's uh, an issue in Bitcoin Core so far, but no um, implementation. So this is on a long timeline, but it would make a lot of things way easier uh, surrounding uh, faster block building and more correct blocks in the sense of maximizing the fees collected by miners and generally faster and cleaner eviction. Uh, yeah, did I cover that completely, Gloria? Am I missing something? I think so, yeah. And we talked about this before. I mean, I think you went into more detail this time, so maybe there's no need to link a past one. But newsletter, let me see, I think it was 251. We also talked about this. Yeah. Um, so should I continue off of the- Yeah, I think the transactions, right? Sure, yeah. Um, so 
as as March mentioned, it's it's a bit long term. Um, I think if we were to wait for that to be done, we might be waiting a little bit of time. Um, and it also doesn't quite solve kind of the rule three for like absolute fees pinning problem that I just mentioned right before this. Um, and that kind of, I think the general, like two kind of very general insights or takeaways that I would say for the past year of discussions about RBF. One is like our limits are not, they're too permissive and they're not very effective at controlling what we want to control. Um, and the other one is perhaps different use cases require different kinds of package limits. Um, so for example, you can imagine kind of a batched withdrawal from a exchange sending to a lot of different customers. Um, it would be kind of unfair if only like one of them got to spend their output from that unconfirmed transaction. Um, so it, it does make sense. I, I, you can definitely say there are, there are times where it makes sense to have multiple like descendants allowed from an unconfirmed transaction. But in this case, we're kind of hurt by that because there's so much room for one of the uh, participants of the uh, channel to attach a bunch of stuff to this commitment transaction where really the only use case, the only like use case that we care about is being able to is being able to fee bump that transaction, um, and so V three is kind of this like dead simple like <laughs> policy where you you could opt in to a more restrictive set of package limits, and those limits are you get one unconfirmed parent and one unconfirmed child, and that's it. Um, you have a cluster size two, essentially, and that child is only allowed to be a thousand virtual bytes. Um, and so that kind of, it limits the cost of replacement, essentially, right? Because if you want a commitment transaction to confirm and, you know, your fee estimator says that it needs to be, let's say, 50 sats per V-byte to make it into the next block or next two blocks or something, um, then you can, like, just calculate, okay, maximum, like, the maximum cost of replacement is going to be, you know, that fee plus up to 1,000 times, uh, 1,000 virtual bytes times this fee rate, you know, to bring that to that. Um, and, and that's going to be much better than, if, for example, the child could be potentially 100,000 virtual bytes. Um, and so the, the idea here is to kind of limit the, Greg calls this economical damage that your counterparty could do to you um, by, by kind of abusing the descendant limit uh, looseness. Merch has his hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to reiterate and sort of uh, describe from a different angle. Essentially, by limiting, you you know what use case you have with commitment transaction. You just want to enable someone to bump it. And mm -hmm. by limiting yourself to always having only this cluster of two transactions, you get rid of the options of having additional parent transactions that have a high weight that might bog down the transaction. You limit yourself from having additional children that might increase the package size and make a RBF uh, really expensive. And uh, really, it's in the interest of both parties to delimit themselves because it just makes it dead simple and obvious how much cost there might be eventually to to bump the commitment. That's all. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I mentioned that this is cluster size two because you can essentially apply some 
like you get some of the benefits of the cluster mempool stuff like you get to um you can calculate what a mining score is of a cluster to like cluster size to cluster um without having you know the entire restructuring of the mempool simply because there's only two transactions so that's nice we get kind of a shortcut to some of the things that we want from cluster mempool it's still you know far better to kind of do this larger effort of restructuring it but it's nice that we have both a short-term solution and a long-term solution and we need v3 either way um so cool and then the final proposal that's discussed in this post builds on top of v3 and kind of the properties you have with it to uh to eliminate the requirement of putting value into your anchor output um so i think this comes up in the context of ln symmetry where you're hoping that these kind of update transactions which represent the state of the channel balance um, to be able to be chained off of each other but the problem with anchor outputs and needing value in them is you have to shave off a, like some amount of the funding input into these anchor outputs. So it's, it'll be, I think it's 320 Satoshis or so. Um, and so, it, but if you think about like, okay, let's say we, we want to chain like a hundred update, hopefully not, but like an update transactions off of each other like at every step you have to like shave off 300 something satoshis and so you're like leaking channel balance at each update um which just doesn't it's just a little bit less useful then um so it's it'd be nice to to not have that problem but still be able to fee bump um, and so ephemeral anchors essentially says, okay, let's like add a kind of almost like a carve out rule where if you have to be, you have a V3 transaction, it has exactly zero fees on it. And it has this anchor shaped output. Um, that output gets to be zero. It gets to be below the dust threshold. It can be, it doesn't need to be, but it can be, um, and the idea there is that this anchor output will be spent immediately by a fee bumping child, and it will never actually make it to a UTXO set. Um, so, like, it's zero fees, so you got to bump it. Um, and this transaction is only allowed to have one child because it's V3. And that child is not allowed to have any other parents, so it can't be bumping anything else. Um, and so this output quote unquote has to be spent now of course it's not consensus enforced but it is like per, like it's just in incentive incompatible for this just to not happen right and, and so in that sense the anchor output is ephemeral hence the name ephemeral anchors which i think is a very cool name as well i think it's very very nice sounding um and so that kind of allowed oh merch has you have your hand up uh, if you want me to, I, I would jump in a little bit if, if that's fine. Yeah, fine. Um, so 
as we heard earlier, the current anchor output proposal that is uh, already live on the network requires one anchor for each side. And the thermal anchors, especially since they are forced to be spent because the parent has zero fees, so it wouldn't even make it into the mempool unless there is a child that bumps it. Um, it we can use a true output here. So the output is tiny. There's an amount and like one byte, just up true. And the input of that is also tiny because it can be empty. The input script is completely empty. So you sort of get the benefits of the anchor output, but you don't have, you have the minimum possible extra data to link those two transactions, but you can, uh, decouple the fee paying from the commitment transaction. And because it's an true output, either party can use the anchor output. So you don't need two anymore. And the mechanism for how the second one gets cleaned up after the transaction is there. And um, since we would use the V3 transactions and we can only have a single child, you don't have to worry about any of the other outputs getting spent and pinning attacks or um, like larger RBF uh, packages that you need to, to replace because something gets attached. You, the only way to spend it uh, for it to be policy um, valid would be to to attach to this ephemeral anchor with altogether an overhead of 52 bytes or so uh 50 50 bytes and yeah so that it's really really cool anyway sorry <laughs> yeah i mean i was i was at the end really um it's pretty exciting i think it'll take a few years to build all of it oh sorry i shouldn't say that it'll take a short amount of time we're working really hard to get everything done. Hopefully we'll have it soon, TM. Um, so it's, yeah, it's cool. It's, I sent this to my mom because I was really excited and wanted her to know about what we're working on. <laughs> we have one of the protocols that consumes some of these potential uh, transaction really network improvements here. I see TBAST is giving thumbs up and clapping and 100. TBAF, what are, what are your, what's your take? Do you have anything to add to, to what Gloria and Merch have outlined in terms of uh, improvements on the policy front? Yeah, I, ju I just want to highlight that this is this is amazing work. This is really useful. We are gonna, this is going to simplify Lightning and any layer two protocol by an incredible margin. So the, this is very, very important work for any protocol that builds on top of Bitcoin. And I'm really happy that we, we've been able to find the solutions that only require policy changes and require a lot of work for sure. But Gloria has been amazing working on that one for, for so long and getting things merged and accepted and making sure that the discussion was continuously moving forward in the right direction. So yeah, I'm really happy to see all of this making progress and I just can't wait to be able to use it in Lightning. Waiting for confirmation number 10, titled Get Involved. The last post is kind of just a summary of a lot of the kind of central themes that we went, that we wrote about over the past uh, nine weeks before that. 
Um, this kind of came about when Merch and I were talking in the chain code office and I was kind of like, kind of ranting, um, where I feel like people sleep on mempool and peer to peer stuff all the time. And there's all this like buzz about soft forks. Um, and they'll be like, Oh, I have to do amazing things like covenants and vaults and all these things. And then you'll see in the papers uh, that people write, Oh yeah, by the way, this needs package relay. I'm like, well, we need people to, to, to make that happen as well. Um, and so this is kind of like a recruiting effort slash like hope to like nerd snipe some people who, you know, are really smart and can dig really deep on the different soft works out there. Um, but, you know, could also maybe turn their attention towards some of the very interesting things going on in mempool. Um, I often, I, I, yeah, I, but hopefully maybe, hopefully someone's nerd sniped. If you, if, if you read the series and got interested, please, please feel free to message me always looking for, uh, mempool people to work on Bitcoin core. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's kind of, that's all I wanted to say with this is, you know, mempool is responsible for a lot of important functionality of a Bitcoin node, as well as responsible for many headaches of developers and users. And we can change that if we work together. Merch, do you want to say anything? I saw <laughs> Gloria, I saw your, your your post, I think it was yesterday, your spicy take that softworks are overrated <laughs> and interesting stuff is in the peer-to-peer -peer network. And I, and I guess that's part of uh, the motivation there is to maybe um, draw some developer and, and technical expertise towards not only just evaluating interesting and potentially sexy softworks, but also some of the stuff that's going on with policy and peer-to-peer -peer and mempool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I also would kind of just recommend it as kind of a, maybe a different way of looking at how cool the Bitcoin network is. Like, I think there's a lot of really interesting ideas introduced by Bitcoin and a lot of really interesting technical pieces of it. Um, but I, again, I think people kind of take the, the decentralized structure of it for granted a little bit. Like, of course, there are plenty of, you know, crypto projects where they're structured as decentralized as in they have a peer-to-peer -peer network but um that's also created by um like there's a lot of design decisions that go into like okay ultimately our goal is to have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of independent anonymous entities running these nodes not just you know the same guy spitting up some in aws us central dash one and some in asia dash dash two or you know that's that's not quite decentralization um and it ends up being these like very interesting kind of trade-offs that you have where you're like all right we only get 300 megabytes like what's the best we can do with this data structure we have to make sure it's really cheap we have to make sure it's very efficient and it's you know defensive against attacks and it also can't censor things. like there's all these very interesting um technical challenges when you're trying to design this this piece of software that is hopefully accessible by lots and lots of people around the world um, to run. So I, I don't know, I, I find Mempool very interesting, Mempool and peer-to-peer, -peer. Um, and hopefully other people do too. <laughs>
Merch, Gloria mentioned a couple things there that could be something that would be looking for a takeaway from the community from the series. One thing that I heard was trying to draw technical talent to some of the interesting research and, and coding that may go in, into existing policy or, or new policy changes. And then another, another thing is just maybe broader community awareness of, of the, what, what goes into peer to peer and policy. What, what, what's something that you would hope that the community takes away from this series? I assume you echo both of those sentiments. Yeah, those. And I think we had multiple interesting debates in the past year, one and a half years, where mempool played a crucial role. And it sort of showed that very many people don't have a deep understanding of uh, how mempool fits together, what it all does under the hood, what the design concerns are, and just how difficult it is to collaborate in a space where you have absolutely no information about the other nodes, whether they might be malicious or uh, collaborating with you. And you have to be ready for all of those things and be able to handle them. So I think um, it also is meant to just help people get an appreciation and understanding of how, how things fit together and what the mempool all does under the hood, what mempool policy does for us, and why those things might be a little more important than um, just, well, we would like to have bigger inscriptions, so could you please drop all standardness rules? Gloria, um, maybe this is an opportunity that's not directly related to the Waiting for Confirmation series, although I think we touched on some of it, but maybe you can let folks know what will you be working on this next year that isn't writing a mempool and policy series for Optech? Like everything? Is like stand-up? This is? <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe some of the big pieces potentially related to some of the policy stuff we're talking about. Mm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get package relay done as soon as I can. It's like so much harder than than one would imagine. Uh, shout out to Greg, who's on this spaces. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for helping me with that. Um, and and then the V three proposal. Both of these are mentioned in post number nine, I think. Um, I'm also running, this is, I'm going to show a Bitcoin core PR review club. It's Bitcoin core dot reviews. Um, we're kind of doing a revamp to try to get it, like give it some new life. Um, we are going to do meetings every month to talk about a big ish PR and all of the surrounding areas, uh, the code base areas that, that it's touching in an effort to help people learn more about the code base, learn how to review PRs like what to look out for, what are some uh, pitfalls, uh, reviewing with a kind of security mindset, and hopefully recruit some new new talent. Um, so yeah, BitcoinCore.reviews. That's most of what I'm doing. I'm going to review some PRs. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Merch. Yeah, I wanted to mention because it's been alluded to, but not really said out loudly. Um, so Gloria's been working on uh, package relay and the related topics for, I don't know, 
something like over two and a half years now. And one of the things that is happening there is that uh, it's a focus of the Bitcoin Core project, this uh, release cycle. And uh, we talk about that every week in the Bitcoin Core meeting. And those PRs are looking for reviewers. Um, now, that might not be a topic where you can just jump in from one moment to the next and uh, give good feedback. But if this is interesting to you, because, for example, you work on a upper or second layer network or because you have um, a company that depends on chaining transactions and you would like to have better reliability for RBF or similar things, uh, you should perhaps try to keep abreast of what's happening there and if you can contribute some reviewing resources or or yeah uh, input feedback and yeah review so hopefully this is going to make some more strides with the next release and uh, come get out in this or the next release after but yeah more review could be used on our big projects as projects in Bitcoin Core, including package, uh, package relay, package RBF, V3 transactions, that sort of stuff. Gloria, Merch, any final words to wrap up this post in the series? Let's never do it again. <laughs> That's the spirit. Uh, no, it was great. It was great, but it was a lot of work. Yeah, sorry for roping you into it. <laughs> but I'm very, very, very proud of the work that we've done. It's 8,000 something words. Um, it's, it's fun. It's been good. Well, actually, I do hope that now that we've written it all up, it becomes sort of a standard page to link people to that want to learn about the topic. And um, there's a bunch of different topics uh, wrapped all up in that uh, we do have a topic or another topic page, a page that collects the whole series. So I, th I think I've seen it linked on Twitter recently. Um, yeah. So if you want to learn about Mempool, we do have a long page now that uh, describes a lot of aspects of it that we can link to. So that's great. <laughs>